0: We run that through first grade, and you are most welcome to take your children back there now. For those of you whose children are staying in the service, just as always, by way of reminder, they're most welcome to stay with us and learn the rhythms of worship alongside of us. Uh, We've been going through our confession of faith. We've taken a break from it the last couple of weeks, but. We've been going through our Confession of Faith, the London Confession of Faith, and we've been kind of considering it here before we get to our text and, and looking at how it summarizes uh, particular themes, doctrines of Scripture, and, and how it takes into account uh, the whole counsel of God's Word in the construction of the confession. And this morning, we're looking at chapter 8, paragraph 4, as it relates to Christ. As the mediator, and the, the confession is available in most of the pews in front of you if you're interested in kind of reading along with me. But it says this it says, The Lord Jesus most willingly undertook this office to discharge it. He was born under the law and perfectly fulfilled it. He also experienced the punishment that we deserved and that we should have endured and suffered. He was made sin and a curse. For us, he endured extremely heavy sorrows in his soul and extremely painful sufferings in his body. He was crucified and died and remained in a state of death, yet his body did not decay. On the third day, he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered. In this body, he also ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of his Father interceding. He will return to judge men and angels at the end of the age. So that is chapter 8, paragraph 4. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the gospel of Mark. We are going to finish out chapter 7, and I am extremely grateful to, to Pastor Anod for filling the pulpit these last two weeks. I've been very encouraged just by his preaching of the Word. So, Pastor Anod, thank you so much, um, my brother. So, But Mark chapter 7, we've kind of been going through the Gospel of Mark for some time now. And I want to read verses 31 to 37. And so I'm going to go ahead and read that, and then I'm going to pray, and then we are going to jump in to our text together. But John Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God... He penned these words, and God's Spirit has preserved these words for us. It says this again, Departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Then they brought to him, brought to Christ, one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers in his ears, and he spat, and he touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed, and he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And immediately his ears were open, and the impediment of his tongue was loose, and he spoke plainly. Then he commanded them that they should tell no one, but the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He's done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. We go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time that we have to be able to gather. And to collectively hear the proclamation of your word. Spirit, we ask that you would use it to change us, Lord, to shape us, to convict us, to increase our faith. And as always, to help us see Christ more clearly. So we confess our dependence upon you as we look at your word this morning, and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, I want you to, to think for a moment just about the, the, the best news, in, in your opinion, the best news that you could possibly hear, right? and, and maybe what, what pops into your mind is, as I ask that question is, maybe for some of you, it's learning that you've been healed getting a, a a clean bill of health, right? Our text this morning is a is a historical account of a healing and maybe you've suffered for a long time and your idea of the best news ever, ever is being told that, you know, the cancer's gone. Right? Maybe there are those of you who live paycheck to paycheck and and you can't seem to get ahead on the bills and you know, you learn of some long lost relative that's left you a a fortune, an inheritance, maybe that for you would be the best news that you could hear. For some of you, maybe it's learning that you've landed this ideal job. Kids, maybe it's learning that your mom and dad got you a present, something that you've, you've really been wanting and you, you don't have to wait until Christmas to open the present. But, but what comes to your mind when you think of the best of news? What comes to your mind when you think of the best of news and I 'm genuinely asking the question right? just just ponder it in in your head and in your heart for a moment and, and to help you answer this question, think about what it is that you that you ruminate on okay so so don't be quick to give the, the the Sunday school answer, but but really search for a moment and and think about what it is that that you ruminate on, what it is that you obsess about, what it is that you you just desperately want to hear? What is it that occupies your head and your heart? Now, for this man who, who couldn't hear, right, this man who, who had a, a speech impediment, right? the best of news for him could have been learning that he was going to, to see Jesus, right? But I want us to see this morning that there's more going on in this passage than even this miraculous physical healing, as incredible as it is, While while it may not seem like it at, 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 at first glance, our passage this morning, it does give us the best of news. In fact, our passage this morning even speaks to how we can hear, how we can spiritually hear the best of news. Now, Mark is the only one that records this specific Miracle. Matthew gives us kind of a more general detail, a general accounting of, of, of Christ in, in the, the Gentile cities here in Matthew chapter 15. But the reason behind Mark recording this spe- uh, specific miracle is related to what we've been observing in chapter 7 already. Right? If we, we remember that, that, that Mark under the inspiration of the Spirit, he's writing to a majority Gentile population. He's writing to Gentiles in Rome. And when we contemplate the spiritual implications of this passage, we can see that Mark is giving his readers, and because the Spirit has preserved the Word for us, the be- us, the best of news. And the best of news, it seeks to answer the most important questions that... That one could ask is the gospel for all types of people is the gospel for all types of sinners can anybody have access to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and if so how how can we come into the presence right, of, of this good king that pastor Anod reminded us of last week and as Christians, we, we know that this isn't just a theme in Mark that we've been looking at, though it is a theme in Mark, but this is the theme of the totality of Scripture. Right? The whole Bible seeks, us, seeks to tell us the best of news, seeks to tell us this great news in various ways However, the question you have to ask yourself this morning, the question that you have to wrestle with this morning truly is, is it good news for me? Is it good news for me? Or is the gospel of God, is it, is it lesser news to me? Are, are there things that I treasure more? Are there things that I want more? And again, re- really ask yourself, inspect yourself this morning, Are you cold or indifferent or callous toward this news? Is it just too familiar to you? Is it insufficient in your view to drive gratitude and contentment in your heart? Because this is the battle that we all face this morning. None of us are off limits to to this particular struggle, that's why the Holy Spirit through His Word reminds us of this good and beautiful and old story of how God, in His grace and His mercy, saves His people. Reminds us over and over and over, That's so because we struggle this side of eternity to believe it, don't we? We struggle this side of eternity to treasure it. So this morning, I, I want to help us. I want to help you, and I want to help me to, to treasure what really is the best of news so that it can shape our thinking and so that it can shape our character, absolutely, but ultimately so that we may delight in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I want to do that by encouraging us to, to remember, encouraging us to, to internalize and obsess over two things Primarily, and you'll see these in your takeaways. The first is this: I want us to remember the compassion and consider this this morning—the compassion of Jesus. So that's the first thing we're going to remember together this morning. And the second thing that we're going to remember together is the testimony about Jesus. So, so together, let's consider the compassion of Jesus first. And we're going to start by considering the literal road that he traveled according to our text. Could the route that Jesus took to get to the Decapolis, could, could that, in fact, preach to us something about the compassion of Christ? And I believe that it does. Now, I know that the geography of jesus his, his, the geography of his, of his journey is lost on most of us and that's okay but the route that jesus took wasn't what you would call or consider the most efficient route to get to where he was going All right if you're trying to get to the decapolis at the sea of galilee this isn't the route that google maps is going to give you when you type it in okay it's, it's out of the way. In fact, one commentator helpfully put it this way. He says this, From the regions of Tyre, Jesus traveled over 20 miles north to Sidon, then southeast across the River Leontes, and from there further south through Caesarea Philippi to the Decapolis on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. This horseshoe-shaped itinerary is not a step shy of 120 miles in length. It is a puzzling itinerary, like going from Washington, D.C. to Richmond by way of Philadelphia, to just give us a kind of modern comparison there. So, this isn't a direct path. Uh, 120 miles did not have to be traveled by Jesus, yet he did this intentionally. Now, Mark doesn't say this directly, but if we think contextually about the point that's being made, that this gospel is for all types of people, that this gospel is for all types of sinners. And again, this has been a theme that's continued to come up. But if we remember that, and if we remember even if you can think back a couple of weeks ago to how the Jewish religious leaders would look at Gentiles and, and call them and consider them to be dogs, right? As as unsavable scavengers. And if we think about how this passage immediately follows the healing of the Syrophoenician's daughter who was demon-possessed, then we can see or take away something that I think is deeply encouraging. And it's that the seeking and saving ministry of Jesus, it travels far. It travels far. Jesus ventured far into Gentile territory. He went far into the territory of the dogs, right? He literally went out of his way and it wasn't because he was bad with directions, right? Jesus was and is the eternal God, right? He put these on the map as the creator, didn't he? And this Jesus, who's truly God, this Jesus who's truly man, he intentionally entered into Gentile territory, and Mark makes that explicitly clear in our text by giving us this otherwise strange detail, right? His readers would have Known of the geography. In other words, right, especially for these these Gentile readers, the healing of the Syrophoenician's daughter it wasn't a one-off. It wasn't a one-off. Right, there was and is a more comprehensive plan than that, meaning the kingdom of God branching out, traveling. Far right, and, and we get a taste of that in the first advent of Jesus and his ministry, that's been recorded for us by the gospel writers. We see his compassion. We see his commitment to draw all types of people, people deserving, by the way, only of the wrath of God for sin. Right? He's committed to drawing those types of people to himself. Jesus. And at times it can be hard for us to, in a lot of ways, I think, really believe this. It can be something that we say, but again, really internalize this. But Jesus will have the nations. He will have the nations. His earthly ministry, it demonstrates this to us. And His exaltation and His authority over all things in heaven and on earth teaches us to this. There's no place that Christ's authority and thus His ministry... Will not extend. And that's a good and glorious thing. The good news about Jesus, it travels far because that's what our Savior intends. And we should see and be thankful for the compassion of Christ in this. Now, we also see the compassion of Jesus and how he treats this particular individual that's brought before him as well. So it's not just the geography, it's not just where he travels. Right again, further and further into the land of people that would be considered far from God and unsavable, right? It's not just that as we look at the ministry of Jesus and as we consider his person and his work, but it's also the compassion that he exhibits as he encounters this particular man, right? When Jesus arrives at the destination that Mark records for us after his 120-mile journey, right? There was a man who was deaf and he had an impediment in his speech, right? We see that in verse 32. But this man is brought to him, and, and those who brought him begged Jesus to put his hand on him, to, to touch him, to touch this Gentile, to touch again who would be considered this dog. And what does Jesus do in response? And I, and I think this is a foreshadowing, of what He does to us spiritually, and what the the triune God does to us through the blood of Jesus. And we'll talk about that in a a minute. But what does He do in response? If you're looking at your text with me, we see that He takes this man aside. (coughs) He he takes him away from the multitude, and and He touches him. And He touches him literally in the ears and in the mouth. Right? Jesus puts his fingers in the ears of the deaf man. Then he spat, probably in his hands, right, and then he grabbed the man's tongue, or he touched the man's tongue. And this isn't the only time that we see Jesus use his own spit and healing. We'll see that in the next chapter in Mark as well. But why is that? Well, some scholars have noted there's a, an oral tradition of the Jewish leaders that's now contained in the Mishnah that held that the spit of, of certain persons was considered to have healing power, especially if it was accompanied by conversation and it was specifically applied to the area of sickness and it was prayed over as well. And we certainly see Jesus do these things with the man, right? He touches him he prays, he intercedes for this man, right? He, he, our text says that, that Christ looked up to heaven, right? And then it says, and he sighed. Verse 34 says he sighed. Some of your translations may say groaned, right? He groaned. And the Greek word behind it has this idea of groaning against something or groaning in pain. And what is it that we see Jesus in his humanity groaning against? Well, if we reduced it down to one word, we could say that it's sin. But that needs fleshing out a bit more, doesn't it? Right? It's both the personal sins people commit, yes, but it's also the results of the first sin in the garden, right? This, this ripple effect on all of creation, right? The fact that we live in a broken and fallen world, a world where our bodies don't work the way that they were originally designed to work. And there's a few places that help us to understand this, and it's important we consider it as we're thinking through the compassion of Jesus. First, we see Jesus groaning at the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees in the very next chapter that word is used. Mark chapter 8, verse 12, quote, but he sighed deeply. There it is. He sighed deeply in his spirit, and he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. Right? Sin, it has a, a deadening effect on us. Right? It, it makes us callous toward the things Of God, it makes us indifferent. It makes us cold toward Christ Jesus, right? That's why I was asking you at the beginning of the sermon this morning why you what you what it is that you consider truly consider to be the best of news, right? Is your own sin, (coughs) is your own selfish desires, your commitment to gratify your flesh, polluting your view to see Christ as your best news? It's one of the reasons we regularly. Confess sins and remember our pardon in Christ Jesus. So that's one way we see one of the things we see Christ sigh at, groan at. We also see groaning as it relates to the impact of sin on our bodies. The Bible calls death a what? An enemy. Because death an enemy, death is not good, and every single one of us will face death at some point, and it's the result of the fall of man, right? An aspect of mourning the death of a loved one is remembering the fact that this is not how things were originally designed, right? And we see Jesus and his humanity groaning at the tomb of Lazarus, who, by the way, he temporarily resurrected, right? Lazarus would face another death, but Jesus resurrected at the account I'm about to read you here in a moment. But let's look, John 11, 33. Right? Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, right? this is Jesus coming to the tomb of Lazarus, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. If you look at verses 38 and 39 of that same passage, that same chapter, it says, Then Jesus, again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. All right, so we see Jesus and his humanity grown as well against death, the result of the first sin by the first Adam in the garden. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn with me over to Romans chapter 8. <coughs> Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 22 to 23, and then I'm going to drop down to verse... 26 and read that through to verse 30 because not only do we see jesus groan but scripture speaks of all creation groaning and scripture speaks of the spirit interceding as jesus did for the mute and the deaf man through what the scripture calls groaning okay so we see that in romans 8 too, as we're kind of considering jesus on behalf of the deaf and the deaf man with the speech impediment him praying, Him interceding, Him groaning or sighing. But verse 22 says, For we know that whole, the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Then look down at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who were called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So what do we conclude from this? Well, first... <coughs> There's much to groan about, isn't there? Right? There's much to groan about. And the reason there's much to groan about is because this is a sin-infested world, isn't it? Right? We live as Christians in a sin-infested world. We're still plagued this side of eternity. We've talked about this already this morning. We're still plagued this side of eternity with our own particular sins. As Christians, we, we long for, or we should long for the day when God in Christ sets things right, right? If if we're in a position in our Christian pilgrimage in which we're just as comfortable as can be, that's probably not a good sign for our spiritual condition. There should be some level of being uncomfortable in our lives because we long for things to be set right. right. There's also much to groan about. Not just because what we observe in creation, not not just because of, of, of our own particular sins. But again, many of us are suffering. Things break down. We're sick. So we see groaning as a normative part of things this side of eternity in the Christian life. But we also, in this passage, Romans 8, and the Mark passage, the John passage, we also see the nearness of our God, don't we? We see the nearness of our God in the midst of all of this. Right? We, we see the Spirit groaning for believers, right? our Helper who lives in us. Right? We see Him groaning, interceding this side of eternity for us. We see Jesus groan at the tomb of Lazarus. We see Jesus groan on behalf of the man who can't hear and who can't speak as he looks up to heaven here in our text in Mark. Now, I don't know if this man was born without the ability to hear and speak. Some scholars say that he had the ability, but he lost it. and they come to that conclusion by focusing on the Greek word that's translated as impediment instead of, of mute. But either way, right? can you imagine for a moment Jesus being the first voice that you've either ever heard, right? or Jesus' voice being the first voice that you've heard in quite a long time? And then when Jesus speaks, our text says that the ears of the man were open and the tongue of the man was loosed, which literally means... It was set free from captivity, as if it were held prisoner. The church family, we should see the the compassion and the nearness of our Savior, even in this land that, even in the midst of this land we live in, which is characterized by groaning. Right? We should see His nature in this miracle, and then consider, or better, remember. Just the compassion of Jesus at, at as we are looking at it in the text, but bring it down and bring it to bear on, on your own life. Consider the compassion of Jesus in your life. Consider the compassion of Jesus in your life. You know, I mentioned that there are scholars that talk about Jesus keeping this <coughs> oral tradition, this Jewish tradition, is the reason for the way in which he touched the man. And, and I think that's true and right. But I think this is also a picture for us of what God in Christ does for us spiritually as well. And I want us to consider that this morning. If you're a Christian, remember that Christ took you aside. Spiritually speaking, He took you aside. Just as He separated this this man from the multitude, so He separated you. And He separated you not because of you, not, not, not because you're great, and that it's because God's salvation is it's not primarily about you, right? God's salvation of you is, is about Him primarily. It's about His glory. And, and that's a good thing because if your salvation, if it's centered on you, well, that would be a shaky foundation, right? If your salvation was based on you, who you are or what you've done, then there would be no certainty that you could keep or maintain your salvation. Your salvation is by God, and it's to the glory of God, and that's great news for us because that's a sure and steady anchor. That is an imperishable salvation. The Apostle Paul reminds us under the inspiration of the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 to 6, he says, blessed be the God So he's taken us aside spiritually. If you're a Christian, we should see the compassion of Christ in our lives for that. Consider as well that our Lord has put his fingers in your ears, in my ears. Now, kids, I'm not talking about the kind of fingers in the ears in which you're trying not to listen to someone. (coughs) This (coughs) This is the opposite of that. If you have ears to hear the word of God, and I mean understand and internalize and take for yourself these spiritual riches, then it's because our Lord has graciously and gloriously opened your ears, right? You know, Jesus sticking his fingers in the ears of the deaf man, that that's an, it's just an interesting thing. It's an interesting, it's an interesting way that Mark put it. It's an interesting. Uh, you know, way in which Jesus went about healing this particular man, right? Because we've seen Jesus heal people without touching them, you know, just speaking. But he touched this man, right? If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you see the phrase "the finger of God" several times, and one of the primary places that you see it is in the the writing of the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter thirty-one, verse eighteen says, "And when he had made," speaking of God. <coughs> When he made an end of speaking with him, with Moses, on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Ephraim was a Syrian. He was a deacon and in in a hymn writer in the 300s. He, he spiritually applied that phrase in this way. He says this, he says, "...the Spirit is called the finger of God." And he goes on, he says, when the Lord put his fingers into the ears of the deaf mute, he was opening the soul of man to faith through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Certainly, this this ancient writer could be ascribing too much of what's going on in this particular healing. Was Jesus opening the soul of this man as well as his ears? He could have been. But for every one of us that repents of sin and trusts in Jesus Christ, we must know it's because of the finger of God. It's because the Spirit of God has given us the ability to spiritually hear, spiritually discern the gospel of God. He's healed our ears, otherwise we would be deaf to the things of God, unable to change our position, right? Just as the man had to be brought before Christ and and people had to intercede on His behalf to Jesus, so we are helpless. Finally, as we consider the compassion of Christ, think of the spit of Christ touching the tongue of the man. Think of the spit and ask yourself, has His body cleansed me? Has the body of Christ cleansed me? Right, we're reminded of this every time, that, every time that we come to the Lord's table. Right. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, but He... Speaking of Christ coming in the future, right? We're looking back Isaiah <coughs> israel was looking forward. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. 1 John chapter 1 verses 6 and 7. If we walk in the light As He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Romans 5, 9, much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. As Christians, we have been cleansed by the body of Jesus. And right? if you share union with Christ Jesus, then His death meant the death, the penalty of your sin. His resurrection means that you're justified. His resurrection means that you will one day gloriously be resurrected as He was, as He is, when He comes again. So we must see and, and remember the compassion of Jesus in our text and in our own Personal lives. And as you observe it, as you contemplate it for a moment, ask yourself again do you see this as the best of news? Do you see this as the best of news? <coughs> Secondly, remember the testimony about Jesus. Remember the testimony about Jesus. And there's two things that speak to us about the testimony of Jesus in our text that I just want to bring your attention to. First, we see that this miracle that Jesus conducted is the fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah, right? In other words, the testimony that Jesus is the Messiah, it rings true, right? Jesus, in this particular text, is, is the fulfillment of a particular prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 35, right? Isaiah 35, it comes after a series of judgments that are pronounced on God's people by God through the prophet because of their idolatry. But the section I want to draw your attention to relates to God redeeming and saving them. And, and, and see that these sacred words, they find their ultimate fulfillment again in Christ. Chapter 35 in Isaiah, starting with verse 1 it says, The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Verses five and six. And you'll see some overlap here with our text and in this one. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Pastor Anod spoke of singing as a command last week, and I was encouraged and convicted by that. Our God is worthy of our singing. And we see that all over these six verses, right? We see in the light of the glory of God and the salvation that he's provided that the appropriate response is singing, right? It's what we do, it's what all creation does, it's rejoicing, right? And we see that it's God alone who makes it so that the tongue of the dumb will sing. And not only do we see Jesus fulfill this literally in our Mark passage this morning, but it's fulfilled spiritually by all those whom the Holy Spirit regenerates, right? Our tongues we were once spiritually mute, but because of this great gospel, right, because of our great Savior, because of the best of news, we sing to our triune God. Right? How could we keep silent? How dare we keep silent? And we sing even in the midst of living east of Eden, don't we? Even in the midst of the land of groaning, we sing. We sing even though we stumble, right? We sing as we long for that day, that everything is definitively made new because singing is remembering. Singing is remembering. So we see that Jesus truly is the Messiah. He's truly the fulfillment of these Isaiah prophecies. The The stories about him are true. The testimonies about him are true. And secondly, lastly, as we remember the testimony of Jesus, think of his reception in the Decapolis in our text. <clears throat> this isn't the first time that Jesus had visited the Decapolis or the, the, the ten surrounding kind of Gentile regions, if you remember. All right, we saw him in this familiar Gentile territory back in Mark chapter 5, the first 24 verses. Right? That's the first recorded evidence that we have of Jesus' ministry in that area. And when we saw him there, we saw him heal a man who was possessed by the legion. Right? And, and what do you remember the response of the people who had found out about this healing? What do you remember their response to be? Back in verse 17, we see Mark record this. It says, they began to plead with him, to plead with Jesus, to depart from their region, to leave, right? People from the Decapolis, they begged, they, they, they pleaded with Jesus to leave. In contrast to the multitude at that time, we saw that the former demon-possessed man, he begged to be with Jesus, Yet instead of Jesus allowing this man to go with him, he commissioned him. Jesus said this to the man. He said in verses 19 and 20, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And this is the man's response. And he departed and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. So this is the charge Jesus gave to the man who was previously possessed by the legion. And in our text this morning, we see Jesus, he returns to this region, to this area, and what he finds is quite different than what he left, isn't it? All right, in this particular visit, he's proclaimed by the multitude of the one who does all things well, which is reminiscent of what he told the man formerly possessed by the legion to say about him, isn't it? Tell them all the great things the Lord has done for you. The testimony of the multitude upon his return, you have done all things well. You've done all things well. It seems that that first Gentile missionary, right, this former demon-possessed man that people were terrified of, had some success in his proclamation of Jesus in the Decapolis. And in Matthew's more general account of Jesus's visit here, we see this interesting detail. And In verse 31 of chapter 14, So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speak, the maimed made whole, the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. So the best of news this morning, I believe, can be summed up with this. He has done all things well. And we know that to be true spiritually for us, right? He has saved us to the uttermost, right? He has given us this imperishable inheritance. The Holy Spirit of God is the guarantor of that inheritance until the day that we acquire possession of it. He's truly done all things well. Our circumstances often cloud this for us, right? Our personal sin, our sense of entitlement often clouds this for us, But may the testimony of the multitude and the Decapolis be our testimony. He has done all things well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for the compassion of Christ. Lord, that He would save sinners like us. God, we thank You that Your Spirit has given us ears to hear, God. Lord, as Ezekiel, Your prophet says, Lord, has given us a new heart, heart of flesh. Lord, I pray that we would have a renewed sense of gratitude for your work in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that that would drive us to treasure Christ, to consistently and quickly repent of sin, to flee. Or these sinful habits of murmuring and grumbling and complaining and becoming embittered, Lord, help us in light of who Christ is and what He's done, be a content people. You've done all things well, and we love you in Christ's name. Amen.